ask the Lord to teach us uh, his word here this morning, his truth. Am I coming through on this? Okay, good. All right, let's bow our heads together. Father God, uh, we are so grateful to you for speaking to us from these epochs of time that are foreign to us, that are uh, so foreign to our experience, that are foreign to the day and age that we live in. But yet, Father, we are thankful for your eternal Son, your all-knowing, your ever-present, your, your, your perfect Son who came and lived among us and also let us know that as in the days of Noah, so it would also be before his return to take us to be with himself. Lord, it is hard for us to watch our nation turn away from you. It's hard for us to see the political debate that ignores you, uh, that almost sees belief in you as a detriment uh, to, to their popularity, that we know that person's holding to a firm grasp of your truth and to your word would be a detriment to their, to their popularity with the general populace, Father. It's hard for us to watch this. But Lord, again, we are grateful that you walk with your people through days that are even like those leading up to the flood as we wait for your return. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would teach us here from your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would give me your special filling of your Holy Spirit here this morning to teach what you have to say and that you would speak through me, that you would speak into my heart just as much as you speak into my, my friends' hearts here who, who sit before me. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking at, in Genesis 5 up through Genesis 6, verse 8, and you're like, what? That much? J.D., do you know yourself? But anyways, we are looking at the glimmers of hope and grace that we see amidst uh, these, these days leading up to leading up to the flood that we're so familiar with uh, that is spoken of in Genesis 6. But uh, we are... That's interesting. <laughs> um, I, was, I was reminded at just how day, the day and ages change, even in our lifetime. I, I was reading uh, two examples of this in the paper uh, earlier this week. One was a comic in which this woman is standing there and she's talking to her child and she's like, okay, do you have your knee pads on? Do you have your helmet on? Do you have your mouth guard in? Do you have your, your elbow pads? Okay, get a firm grip here. And uh, as it pans out, uh, she's talking to her son as he's sitting on one of those mechanical horses. She's like, okay, I'm about to put the quarter in. And these two older ladies are walking by and they're like, how did we ever survive? Our childhood. And, and uh, you know, it's a different day and age of maybe a, a greater protection of, of children's, <laughs> for good reason, very often, but, but sometimes it's overboard uh, maybe. 
Uh, maybe you read or, or even saw uh, down uh, next to uh, Little Caesars in that strip there with the, the uh, bank or credit union that is there. Maybe you saw some of the police officers with their automatic weapons drawn and hiding behind ATM and stuff like that. When, when a couple was at the bank there uh, last week and just jokingly said something about, well, we're just here to rob this place. And boop, lock it down. Employees called the police. Employees got out of the building. This couple is standing here like in the middle of this empty bank like, did we forget what day and age we live in? What were we thinking? Sure enough, cops come out, automatic weapons pulled, all that. You know, in the end, I don't think they were hauled in, but it was kind of like, what are you thinking? Don't you know the day and age that we live in? Well, we're going to be read through Genesis 5 here, and, I, and we don't have the text up on the screen here this morning. So I want to encourage you to follow along in your Bibles, and this is a great opportunity. If you don't have your Bible here this morning, to grab a Bible off of the Welcome Center in the back. Um, if you don't have one at home, take it with you. Um, but we look at, as we read into uh, 1 Genesis 5 here, we're going to observe... What stands out amidst the sad spiral into a sinful society, as we had talked about uh, last two weeks. And what stands out here are glimmers of hope and grace. And first, we observe a God-centered legacy coming from Adam through his son Seth, leading all the way to Noah. And so we read in verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. (coughs) The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So chapter 5 of Genesis looks specifically at the line of Adam to Noah, but it ignores thousands of other brothers and sisters of these people. Okay? Understand that. it's, It's very likely that Adam and Eve had kids, other children, between uh, Cain and Abel and Seth. All right, but this chapter is looking specifically at that line. It's kind of like if you were to like say, well, I'm related to Abraham Lincoln, okay? And, and you were to say, okay, let me show you this person, then this person, then this person, this person, and there's Abraham Lincoln. Well, you, you'd be ignoring all these other hundreds, if not thousands of people you're related to. You're just running that line of your relationship to Abraham Lincoln. That's what this passage does. It's running from Seth, from Adam to Seth to Noah. Ignoring thousands, if not millions, of other offspring, of other cousins and second cousins and such. This is amazing to me compared to the lackluster description of Cain and Abel's birth. It was like an Adam knew his wife Eve and she gave birth to a son, right? But, but here in these verses we're told that, that uh, in, as God made man in the likeness of God. It says that that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. 
So we're just making observations here, but uh, we, w- I, I guarantee you, if, if I can, outside of a total certainty, because Scripture doesn't tell us, but it, Adam and Eve had other kids prior to the 130 years that it took for them to have Seth. And I guarantee you they had other grandkids prior to the 235 years old that Adam would have been when Seth had his son. Uh, Knowing how much Kelly, like, wants grandkids so bad, I'll guarantee you Eve was like, come on, Seth, or come on, these other kids, have grandkids. But but this, this chapter ignores all these other descendants to trace this line from Adam to Noah. I want you to also notice that the glimmers of hope and grace in this chapter, they are not events, they are not things, they are people. These glimmers of hope and grace are people walking in close relationship with God. And that's the people who who more clearly bear God's image and shine His likeness. Well, there's a lot of longevity here, right? I mean, Adam is 930 years old when he dies. The oldest person that, that has ever lived, 969 years, we'll read about here, is Methuselah. And, and um, these guys' birthday cakes must have been major fire hazards, right? It's like, let's not do what we did last year, take the cake out of the tent, put it out in the middle of, you know, uh, an area that's not going to catch fire before we light these candles, uh, there's a lot of theories um, about what would have led to this longevity, lack of UV uh, um, exposure to the sun's rays and things like that. But I don't want to get too much into that. We'll, we'll, but uh, after next Sunday, we're going to have one of those Sunday evening question and answer discussion times. Talk about some of these like, what in the world is this talking about? And that sort of thing. So, so <coughs> next Sunday evening, we'll have one of those times. And I think one of these will be a good thing for us to talk about. But notice the common bookends as we move forward in this chapter to each person's life. It says that when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. And Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years. And he had so other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years. And he died. When Enosh had lived nine years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. God's getting something across here. In fact, the, the, the format here and the description of the descendants of um, Shem, no, the later description of descendants um, in a later chapter of Genesis here is almost exactly the same except for this statement at the end that God is getting across here in Genesis 5. And he died. No matter how special these people were, no matter how important they were, aside from Enoch, which we will see, God is getting something across. The consequence of sin remains the same. And he died. Also, if you want to check this out for kind of further study, I mentioned this a little bit from last week, um, looking at Genesis 4 compared to Genesis 5. There are, if what I would call counterfeit names in the line of Cain, matching up with 
the line coming from Seth. Seth names his son Enosh. Cain names his firstborn Enoch. We'll see that again here. It says, when Canaan, Kenan, starting picking back up in verse 12, when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Well, one of the descendants of Cain is Mahujael. Kind of like what I would call a counterfeit line that the enemy is putting up. But that's just my opinion about that. But continuing on in verse 15, when Mahalalel had lived 60, 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus the days of Mahalalel were nine, 895 years, and he died. So, so a, a descendant of Seth is Jared. One of Canaan's, Cain's descendants is Irid. Very similar in their name. And we'll see that, that while Methuselah, as we'll see, read next, uh, is one of Seth's descendants, one of Cain's descendants is Methushael. We see that in verse 18. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. And Jared lived after he had fathered Enoch 800 years, and after he had sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And within the God-centered legacy, we have insight into a God-centered life. And we read about Enoch in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked after, with God after he'd fathered Methuselah 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. But it doesn't say, and he died. It says in verse six, 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. When it talks about Enoch walked with God, it's talking about he lived in a relationship of trust and obedience with God. And we'll get into that in our points of application in a little bit here. But it continues on with this oldest man that's ever lived. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Then all, thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Uh, some believe that Methuselah's name was foretelling the coming of something amazing, something life-changing, something world-changing. Uh, his name can be translated, when he dies, it will come. Many believe that Enoch was telling prophetically of something that was coming. And if you look at it, I've got a really poor uh, um, picture here of the lines of these people's histories. One thing that you'll notice, first of all, uh, the blue line is Methuselah. The red-ish line at the top is Adam. Their lives would have um, overlapped by a few hundred years. It makes the idea of God's truth passing down by oral tradition a little bit more understandable. I mean, Methuselah could have been like, I'm going to go talk to Adam. I, I'm trying to remember here. Was it his rib that God took or was it like one of his toes? Right? 
I mean, there was overlap in these years. You also see that uh, Methuselah lived up until the year of the flood. His name, as I said, many people believed it being prophetic. When he dies, it will come. You also notice that all the others of this line, Lamech died before his father, Methuselah. All, the, all those of this line had passed away before the judgment coming. That bottom line being uh, the lifespan of Noah. Uh, Rick Payne and I, while we were waiting to get it at a table in, at Cracker Barrel last night, we were reading. Uh, we both love reading like birthday cards and stuff, and one of them was poking fun at somebody getting old, and, and I loved it. It says, you're so old, and I thought, man, maybe these are some of the things that, that uh, Methuselah and, and uh, Adam would, would bat back and forth a little bit, you know, but some of these don't necessarily apply to them, which, which one of them was, uh, you're so old, you remember when the Dead Sea was only sick. Or you're so old, you remember when rainbows only came in black and white. Or you're... You're so old, maybe this one would have applied. You took your driving test on a dinosaur. I mean, these are some old folks. And as I said, after next Sunday, uh, we'll have an evening time of kind of like discussing what are some of the different theories and stuff that, uh, that are really kind of beyond what we're told here in the basics of what we're told in Scripture. <coughs> but we see also that Lamech carried the godly legacy of a God-centered hope. You can pick up in verse 28. When Lamech came, had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I have to wonder, it doesn't necessarily say he didn't father any other kids. You have to wonder, was Noah watching even some of his own children, even some of his own grandchildren, walking so far away from God? as he built the only vessel of salvation from a coming judgment. His name meant to bring comfort to them who were under the curse, the painful toil that came with the curse on the ground, God's perfect creation, the curse that came with sin. Comfort isn't the meaning of Noah's name, but his name it sounds, sounds similar to the term comfort. Notice the God-centered hope that leans on God's promise. It doesn't ask for him to be a genie, saying, just give me a better life. Just get me out of this. Lamech's hope is in line with what God's plan is. God's plan of redemption from what was cursed. Will God bring the comfort for the, from the curse of sin? Yes. And eventually it would come through the Messiah, the one who was what that Adam and Eve were told and, were, and heard in the curse of the serpent, that one day one would come who was an offspring of the woman that would crush 
the head of God's enemy. But the flood would come first. And we can read about the days uh, in the life of Noah in chapter 6, in verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took them as their wives, any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in the, to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. <clears throat> now, next week we'll look at the setting of the days of the flood, and Jeff is going to explain everything that these verses just covered, so he'll get prepared for that. But, but we see a God-centered grace amidst all of this. Even, even amidst is what we read in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I will am sorry that I have made them. Well, we're in, then we read in verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That term favor means grace. Noah found grace in those days. The Septuagint is the Old Testament written in Greek. Okay? It was translated into Greek prior to Jesus, prior to uh, still during the days of B.C., the term they use here that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord is charis. And the translators of the Septuagint from Hebrew into Greek saw that term as Noah found grace. And, and the following verses, as you see there, it talks about how Noah was a righteous man in his day and all of that. But it was after he found grace from God to be righteous. And we'll look at that. Next week as well. A man-centered uh, approach to this idea would be that, that it's not favorable. Why, how would it be favorable to me to be the only person on the earth? Thanks a lot, God. To be the only person on the earth grieved by this. To the, I'll be the only person on the earth that feels like I can't participate in this. I can't be a part of this. I've got to be singled out. I've got to be, be separated from all of it. But a God-centered look at the grace that Noah received would have been understanding, looking at this and saying, how is it that I deserve the grace of knowing God among all the other people on the earth? We see a God-centered grace here. And today we're talking about glimmers of hope and grace amidst all of the wickedness that was on the earth. We, we, we are told 
And, and we were reminded as we, as in the last video, and I, I, won't, I won't ruin it for you, the last video that we were able to watch as we were, were on the, the final um, level of the ark of looking at things, it was a reminder that as in the days of Noah, so the days would be prior to the return of Christ. Jesus tells us that in Luke 17. When he returns, the world would be as it was in the days of Noah. And I remind you too that these glimmers of hope and grace, they're not things. They're not, they're not just even truths that are said. What we're told about here in Genesis 5 and 6, they're people. They're people that walk in a relationship with God. They're people that are holding on to the truth that God has told them. These men waited amidst horrible, grieving, sinful conditions for deliverance. Just as our deliverance by Christ when he returns. They waited for God to show himself to have the solution, to bring deliverance, to bring restoration of what it means to be made in the likeness of God and, and to have His image born unmarred by the sin that surrounded them. And I want to challenge you this morning. In the midst of a sinful society, walk with God. Walk with God. Learn from Enoch, this glimmer of hope and grace, who walked with God. To walk in this context and throughout Scripture, in this idea is a biblical expression for fellowship and for obedience in our relationship with God. We're told in Hebrews 11, Enoch's walk was a walk of trust and obedience. We're told, but by faith, Enoch was taken up so that, when, so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Enoch walked with God. He lived in a relationship of trust and obedience with God. And this has always been God's intention for those who walk in relationship with him. That it be one of trust and obedience. For those who have relationship with him, that it really be a relationship. This was his intention even with the nation of Israel. It was his intention, and it's a description of Noah in, in verse 9 of chapter 6. It says, Noah walked with God. Abraham was called by God into relationship with him in the same terms. In Genesis 17, you can receive, God says to Abraham, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. It was God described his relationship with Israel in the same way. In Leviticus 26, it can say that God says, I will walk among you and be your God. See, even in Old Testament times, obedience has never been expected to be void of relationship with God. Legalism has never been an acceptable replacement of relationship. With God. Absent of relationship with God, obedience is legalism. And how did Enoch walk with God? On gospel mission. You can read in Jude verses 14 and 15. Enoch warned people that God was coming, that, that judgment was coming. Read in verse 15. 
He, he warned them that God was coming to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners had spoken against him. This is a description of what Enoch was proclaiming to his neighbors and to his family. Think of all the accomplishments of Cain's descendants, right? What we looked at last week. They built cities. They were workers with bronze and iron. I mean, they were creating uh, alloys. They, they were known for musical instruments and things like that. And it's not that, that Seth's descendants wouldn't have been invested in these things as well. But those are the things that Cain's descendants were known for. But what matters to God? What do we see here in chapter 5? What stands out? That Enoch walked with God. What do you define as success? What do you define as being important in your life? I'll tell you what's important to God. Is that we walk with Him. That we live daily in His presence. That we walk in relationship of grace with Him. In the glimmer of hope and grace here, we see that what matters to God is that his children walk with him. What, what is the picture that we're given in the New Testament that, that is to best describe God's relationship with his children? It's marriage. It's marriage. It's a relationship of growth, of development. It's a, it's a relationship that is the combination of two people that becomes something unique that wasn't there before, that is even more significant and more bonding than even in their relationship with their blood relatives. We don't talk about marriage like, okay, you two have made this contract, so don't forget about it, you know, and, and you just keep go, kind of going your separate ways, but always remember you're married. We don't talk about it in that way. It's not like, well, I just check in once a day. Hey, uh, it's that 30 minutes that I spend time with you, so let's sit down and, you know, have this devotion to one another time, and then I don't want to have anything to do with you for the rest of the day. What kind of marriage would that be like? (coughs) But marriage is our New Testament picture of what our relationship with God is supposed to be like. But we turn it so often into, well, this is the 30 minutes that I spend with you this morning, Lord, and, you know, guess, okay, thanks, I'll see you tomorrow morning. Or like some contract that we just made at some point. Well, good, I'm just glad I got my eternity taken care of, and me and God just kind of go, go our separate ways. I'm sure I'll meet up with him, you know, maybe after I die or something like that. We're called to walk with God. That's what stood out about Enoch. That's what to stand out about us as well. To trust and obey the gospel. Our walk with him begins with the acknowledgement that I, on my own, am nothing but a sinner, which, thank God, makes me eligible for grace when I can recognize that I have sins, that there is no way that I can take care of on my own and remove them from between me and you and have relationship with you God I need what Christ did for me on the cross and in his resurrection to apply to me so that I can have relationship with you but the gospel doesn't call us to get our fire insurance it calls us into relationship with God clothed in the righteousness of Christ 
And the New Testament still calls us to walk with them. Romans 8.4 describes it. Uh, the, the, the salvation is not being through law in, of the mating of righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. It is. But how is it fulfilled in us? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It describes us. Galatians 5.16 describes a relationship with God challenging us to walk by the Spirit. And by that we'll not gratify the desires of the sinful flesh. We're called to walk with God. We're, we're, we're offered so many things by this world, so much bunk that's supposed to define our lives as meaningful. Like I built a city. I invented bronze. That's the stuff of Cain's descendants. How do you define the meaningfulness of your life? Define it the way that God defined Enoch's meaningfulness. And he walked with God. Also, we see in the midst of a sinful society, hope in the gospel. Hope in the gospel. The way that Lamech hoped in the gospel of God's deliverance that was going to come one day that was going to put an unend, an end to the curse, bring relief from the work and the painful toil of their hands. Lamech was showing a faith that he had in God's promise to undo the curse. Restoration would come one day through that offspring of the woman, through the Messiah. And he believed that the Messiah would come through his son, Noah. We're told in Hebrews 11.1 1, that faith is evidence of things that we can't see. It's evidence of things that we can't see. And we, we put our faith in things that we're told about in the past, as Hebrews 3 also talks about. By faith, we believe that, that what has been made was made out of things that are not visible. We put our faith in the fact that God created it all by his power and out of nothing. And we put our faith, evidence of things that are unseen in the future, looking forward to the return of Christ that we're told about that will come one day. As Jesus himself told us in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Even if our world looks like the days of Noah, we've been told that this is a sign of Christ's return soon. I've shared with you before how I was watching uh, in the theaters uh, the movie Two Towers, uh, Lord of the Rings Two Towers, and there's this scene where Theoden and Aragon and Legolas and Gimli and, and all these, these um, people are held up in Helm's Deep, and, and uh, the orcs and the and the goblins and all this are attacking, and <clears throat> and but Gandalf had told them on the third day, look to the east for my coming, and so they finally charge out there, and 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 all of a sudden they see this shining light from above the hill, and it's Gandalf the White, Gandalf the the one who told them that he would come, and and he comes charging down with all of these hordes of horsemen charging down the hill into all of this army of orcs. And it was hysterical because here I am in uh, the Chicago area watching this. I think it was opening night. 
And somebody in the theater was just overwhelmed by this moment. And throughout the theater, all you could hear is this guy going, It's Jesus! It's Jesus! It's Jesus, I'm telling you! It's Jesus! And he was saying what all of us who were trusting in Christ, walking in relationship with God, were we're feeling at that moment. That is what it's going to be like in the darkest moment as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be before my coming, he told us. Put your hope in the gospel. You know, many of you uh, were saved through the revival of the Jesus movement. And I'm starting to look at American history and look at revivals of the Great Awakening and the Jesus Movement, and, and I, I'm starting to see a little bit of a pattern that, that what it would take to bring our nation back nationally to, to a commitment to the Lord took either a global tragic event, you're talking loss of hundreds of thousands of lives, like a world war or a civil war or revival. And sometimes you guys that were saved during the Jesus movement and, and as my parents, they were leading co-workers to Christ and discipling them or, or Kelly's parents that, that got saved and discipled through a new church that came up through the Jesus movement. Sometimes it's hard for us to nund- not to understand, not to see people turning to Christ from simply hearing the gospel. But no less should we put our hope in the truth of the gospel that that is what brings people to salvation. No less should we be sharing our testimony with people of our changed life through the gospel. Our world needs revival. But revival, come or not, we need to put our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he makes sinners into saints. Lastly, I challenge you, in the midst of a sinful society, lean on God's grace. Here is God planning to blot out man whom he had created. In the midst of all that, and we'll look again at this next week, we're told, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know, total depravity of man has not changed. Even after the flood, we're told in Genesis 8, God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is after the flood that God tells us this. People are born with depraved hearts. But by God's grace through faith, people can still find a saving relationship with him by God's grace. And then to walk in that grace. I've shared with you before that we have this tendency to think that a relationship with God is like a house. It's like a mansion and God's grace is the door. You know, the grace of the gospel is the door. And we walk into that through that grace and we close it and It's like, okay, I'm in. And now we think, well, I've got to navigate this life with God by my own power, by my own ability. Like, it's not still about his grace or something. I mean, think about it. You you open the door up, you let somebody in, you close the door. Now, if it's a salesperson, 
you might say, please come in, right? And, and they're kind of waiting. Or are they going to say, okay, please sit down. Please come over here. Please, you know, or you might just be standing there next to the door with them, talking with them. That's totally different than come in, make yourself at home. And see, that's why God describes our relationship with him as not being like a contract, not being like, okay, now we're in this relationship where I'm your God and you're my people. He describes it as adoption as his sons and daughters. It would be odd for an adopted child to walk in and the parents be like, okay, stop there. That's far enough. No, it's a make yourself at home. Here's your room. Here's your kitchen. Here's your TV. Here's your couch. Here's your world. Here's your life. In the same way, when we walk through that door of grace, we walk into a house of grace. We walk, it's grace that, that brings us to the Lord. It's grace that saves us. It's grace that grows us. And whenever, and, and I know it's going to be just a Freudian slip or something like that, but, but so often I hear people say when they talk about, yeah, I've really screwed up. Just, I'm just grateful for God's grace. But a lot of times what they mean is, you know, that was a moment when I needed his grace. Other times I don't need his grace. But there I needed it. We, our whole relationship with God is by his grace. Just as the only reason why Noah was not out partying and killing and living the immoral life that the people around him were was because he found grace from God to be different. What are the glimmers of hope and grace today? You might be looking for these glimmers. Like the days between Seth and Noah. Today's glimmers of hope and grace, they aren't things. They're people. They're people. Originally made in God's likeness, ruined by sin, but redeemed and restored. You, if you know Christ as your Savior, you are glimmers of hope and grace today. If you walk with God as your Savior, you are a glimmer of hope and grace. If you hope in the gospel, you are a glimmer of hope and grace today. If you walk in His grace, you are a glimmer of hope and grace today. Your testimony of being made in the likeness of God, ruined by sin, but being restored in relationship and purpose to bear his image before the world, you are a glimmer of hope and grace today. Let's bow our heads. Father, we, we are told of so many things that should define us, so many things that, that should define success, things that we've built, things that we've become. The, the work of our own hands, the, the, the inventive thoughts that we've had. But Lord God, if we know you by your grace, if we walk with you by your gospel, it's the fact that we walk with you that's what's important to you. It's the fact that we walk with you that's what, what is important for eternity. And Lord God, the fact that we walk with you is our greatest message to our friends and our family and our neighbors that don't know you, Father. That maybe just feel like they're just trying to keep you at bay or just trying to figure out if they, they even want to believe in you. 
Lord God, I pray for my, my friends here, Lord God, that, that, that we wouldn't be discouraged by the world around us, but that we would see that we are your glimmers of hope and grace. That we would hold out the gospel. That we would invite others to come and to be able to hear your gospel and to walk with you as well. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.